Hey, I'm still feeling the mental hangover. And it's good, though. I got I caught up on sleep, but just, uh, it's, I think it's going to take days for me to recover from this mental hangover. And as a result, why not do an episode? Why not do an episode when I have these little, uh, little cracks, these little spaces of time? I don't know. Uh, but, you know, I... I mentioned I was arguing with a bunch of people over the weekend, which is very rare for me. It's very rare for me to get into arguments with people, especially online. Uh, it almost never happens in person. Almost never happens in person, which tells you something. You know, it tells you something that it's that much easier to get into an argument when you're not with people. And and I've always been, you know, going back to at being a teenager in the early days of the internet, I've always been someone who argues against the separation between the internet and day-to-day reality. And today we can see those things are completely joined up. You know, and some of the stuff, and, and I'm not going to get into any of the free speech stuff here, and I know those are famous last words, but the last word I will say about that here is one of the arguments I've seen about you know, people being banned from Twitter, banned from these other platforms, is that, oh, it's just social media. Social media isn't the world, but I thought Twitter was the dumbest thing in the world for years. Like, I didn't look at it. I didn't do anything with Twitter for years, you know, and and as it became more popular, I wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, but I had to accept that... It has immense influence. I don't think it's a coincidence that the president was using it as much as he was and disturbing people as much as he was. And it's not just him, but I've seen where journalists, even mainstream journalists, get their stories from there. They get their narrative from there. So to say that it's you know just this sort of internet platform. I mean, what that reminds me of is the old argument, it's just the internet. It's just the internet, which might have had weight before the internet merged with reality. And I don't think we've seen the full merger yet, but it is now a part of everything. It is inseparable. The internet is inseparable. And in fact, saying the internet even sounds like an antiquated term to me. Calling the internet the internet. You know, I, I I think I like the word online. I feel like the word online is more relevant than internet, even though people think of those things as completely synonymous. I think that the the internet sounds like something you sit down on your old desktop computer, you log on. That to me is what I think of when I think of the internet. Even though we still use the internet, that's what I think of when we focus it in those terms. But I think seeing it as online, I feel like that better encompasses the fact that it's in our pocket, in our minds, in our interactions, that it fuels everything. The fact that businesses, whether they run a restaurant or whether they run a tech company, a large amount of their mental space is thinking about how do we represent ourselves online? So it's it's just it's merged with everything. And I mean, I think I had a moment where I realized that where I was at, I think a diner, just an old diner, 
and they had a little placard on each table, and it had a big Facebook F, an F, that said, find us on Facebook, which is the phrase that you see, like a bunch of companies use that, find us on Facebook. And I was like, yeah, this, these things are coming closer and closer together. The idea that you are already in the restaurant. So it's like, you, you don't need the advertisement. Like, it'd be one thing if you weren't in the restaurant and saw an advertisement telling you to find a restaurant on Facebook, which wouldn't really make sense to advertise your business that way. But to actually be in this diner, not some, like, modern sushi joint, but to be in just an old-fashioned diner, eating your steak and eggs, sipping your coffee, you know, and, and to see this placard on each table that says, find us on Facebook, where it's like, don't just eat in our diner, which you're doing right now, but connect with us online. And if a diner is encouraging you to do that, a diner that already has your business, that's a sign of something. And, you know, it's it's been years now since people... Like, you know, Facebook is an interesting one because there was a point where people weren't as connected. And so there, there was this huge influx of connection. Like when everybody got on there, it was like friend requests all the time. You've heard of war all the time? Is that, uh, <laughs> is that Henry, what's his name? That drunk everybody likes that drunk writer everybody likes, war all the time. His name will come to me. Not Henry. Hank? I don't know. What's his name? Uh, but anyway, uh, I was going to say Jack Kerouac. It's not him. Oh, Bukowski. Char- Chuck Bukowski. Char- Charlie Bukowski. War all the time. But it was friend requests all the time. You know, it was this huge influx. And if you'd go out to a party, like I had this experience a lot where you'd go out to a bar and friends of friends would meet up with you and your friends. And either later that night or the next morning, you'd wake up with like a friend request from one of those people. If you got along with them, that kind of thing. So there was this, let's not just get along. Let's not just exchange phone numbers, but let's be connected all the time online. So it's little things like that I remember giving me kind of a a little heads up as to where things were heading and the merge, the merger between online and material reality. And I do believe we're at, we are at a point where those things are nearly inseparable even though we can still separate them in Social reality, they're inseparable. But I don't get in many arguments in day-to-day life, but and I don't get in many arguments on the internet. I did when I was like 15, because I was trying to piss someone off or something like that, or they were trying to piss me off. But I don't get into arguments. So this weekend, it was just interesting arguing and arguing about free speech and, you know, maybe to some degree playing devil's advocate. I don't think of myself as a devil's advocate because oftentimes I think what's called devil's advocacy is in fact not defending evil 
I mean, I know the phrase, of course, the phrase isn't meant to mean you're defending the worst possible thing, but it allows you to. Because even the worst possible thing deserves to be contextualized. Even the worst possible thing deserves some sort of argument, which is why we have lawyers. Which is why when someone is accused of a heinous crime, killing a little girl, even they deserve an advocate. You know, we don't just, even if, they're, even if the evidence, even if the guy is found with all of the evidence in the world, we allow them to go through a process and the lawyer offers a defense, some sort of rationale. Even if they plead guilty, they find a way to sort of, I don't know, contextualize what happened, you know? I mean, that's, that's what you see with the insanity plea. Where it's like, oh yes, he did this thing, but he's crazy. So that's necessary. And I think it's necessary outside of the court when it comes to ideas. And I don't want to say that I was playing a devil's advocate in defending Trumpsfeld's right to tweet, which people say, it's just Twitter, get off the internet. And like, you're going to have to tell that to a lot more people. You're going to have to tell a lot more people. You're going to have to actually launch a crusade to make that point. You can't put that back in the box. You cannot put it back in the box now. It's well past that. And you know, and I was late to the game of understanding the power of Twitter. I was late to the game as far as the level of influence it was having on the media, politics, you know, it, it's become one of the most powerful ways to communicate with people somehow. And I wouldn't be able to tell you how because I was late to the game. I'm still kind of wrapping my brain around it myself. But what was interesting, what my point is, is that, you know, in whether you think I was playing devil's advocate or just simply pointing out another angle, because, I mean, that's something I do is it, and I've always done, is that when there is a controversial issue, I often see an angle that isn't being discussed or that I feel isn't being discussed properly. And when I see that, I want to be the one to discuss it. I want to say, hey, have you considered this angle? And when I say that, it's not necessarily at the expense of anybody else. It's not at the expense. Like, if I get into an argument or a debate... I'm rarely looking to smash the opponent. I'm just saying we have to include all of this. But sometimes in saying we have to include all of this, people interpret that as you're trying to replace my thoughts, you're trying to replace my beliefs with your angle. When in reality, it's like, no, there is enough for every angle because that's how we see the whole of something. So that, I'd say that explains my approach with the free speech thing and why I was willing to, I guess, put myself out there. It didn't feel like putting myself out there because I truly don't feel that free speech absolutism should be seen as controversial. It deserves to be argued for and against, but I don't think that that argument should be seen as controversial. I don't think that that should be seen as explicit advocacy for a given idea. 
And and that you'll find that with every free, you know, because people will say, oh, because you're choosing this general idea of free speech because you secretly support the idea. And that's where people, you know, people are such incredible mind readers in that regard. It's amazing what incredible mind readers people are when they disagree with you. <laughs> You know, it's it, as a, as a, uh, you know, somewhat of a psychic, you know, I'm not going to say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a total psychic, but as someone who at the very least my intuition gives me certain things and I wouldn't call them gifts because sometimes I don't want them, but as someone who can kind of read into things, um, you know, it's funny to me that people become these expert mind readers when they hate what you're saying. And know your intentions even better than you do. It's amazing how that really brings out the inner psychic in them. Uh, but one thing that happened in arguing with people the other day was an old friend of mine who, you know, she's very blunt and took a much more belligerent approach. And I don't, I don't say belligerent as an insult. I would just say that was the approach took a little bit more of a belligerent approach than other people. And then very quickly it boiled down to not ad hominem, not to her credit, it wasn't ad hominem, but it, it broke down to this analysis of me, my personality. And she was like, since you've become less social, your statements have become less about your personal beliefs and more of these sweeping declarations about culture, human nature, and politics. And I, I laughed out loud, you know, when I saw that. Not because I thought she was, not in like a, ha, 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 you're so silly. You know, not even in that way. I laughed out loud because, you know, she's right in many ways, except the difference is that I don't know when I wasn't making sweeping declarations about culture, human nature, and politics. I don't know when, and these are people that I used to spend a lot of time with. I used to spend a lot of time with her. She was a drinking buddy of mine, her and her boyfriend, who's a friend of mine as well. Very, they were always very good to me, and I have a lot of love for them. But we have spent less time together since I stopped drinking. And, you know, I've been on my own trip now for uh, two or three years. And uh, I thought that her commentary was really interesting because it, it was it got into this like you've changed sort of thing where instead of sharing your personal beliefs you make these sweeping declarations and I'm quoting her here uh, sweeping declarations about culture human nature and politics and I responded and I said and I I know that the last two or three episodes have been me recapping online discussions but who cares they're discussions they're real the internet is merged with reality so what difference does it make what sort of discussion I'm recapping here. If this was a conversation with the grocery store clerk, I think it would be just as relevant. And I wish the grocery store clerk said that to me. I wish that the grocery store clerk said, y when you used to come in here, you used to talk about your personal beliefs, but now you make sweeping declarations about culture, human nature, and politics. And my response to that is, those are my favorite interests. <laughs> like, I've always made sweeping declarations. Like, if you know me, if you've known me, especially like going back to when I was a teenager, I don't remember a time when my personal beliefs 
were more important than those general things. I mean, I think my personal beliefs are far more rooted in emotion. And when I, if I'm going to make a statement about something, I want it to be as objective as possible. And especially if I'm going to make some sort of statement online, I want it to be as objective as possible. And what is objectivity? Well, it sounds like a sweeping declaration about just these large aspects of our social existence, culture, human nature, and politics. And I said to her, those are my favorite interests. <laughs> and they always have been. I mean, those, I went to college for those things. I studied history and sociology in college. And I, what I will say is not so much politics. I feel like politics is, a, is it a, a disease that has infected us all. So I wouldn't say that's one of my favorite interests. But you can't talk about human nature. You can't talk about culture without politics, especially right now. As any listener of this show knows, you know, I'm very self-conscious of all the political talk I do, but it just, sometimes you just got to give in to the times, and I, I try to offer my take, and I, I try to keep it as general as possible, too. So I took that as a compliment, actually, but it was interesting because this discussion got into this kind of like, you become way less social, and your statements have become way more general and sweeping. And uh, and as I said to her, though, I was like, you know, it's not so much that I become less social, I just don't hang out in bars all the time. You know, beyond that, I would say my social life is very similar to the way it's always been. And the, the period of time where I was, you know, hanging out in bars and partying all the time was actually a very small blip in my life that didn't start until... I was probably 26 years old and ended when I was 30. So there was this four-year window in my life where I was out there drinking all the time, going to parties, spending hours and hours in bars every week. So that itself was the exception. And the isolation thing is interesting, though, because there's obviously a forced isolation right now. You know, you're not even allowed to attend Christmas with your family. I mean, we have a rule in Washington. I haven't paid attention to the the ebb and the flow of the rules. But I know last I heard with the Washington, Washington, the Washington state lockdown was that you're not even allowed to have somebody from another household come to your house. So there's this that's if, if anything counts as forced isolation, that's it. And I got some news for you, because uh, somebody from another household came to my house last night. And honestly, talked to me off a ledge. Not an actual ledge, not like I was self-destructive, but last night I just crashed hard. I was just everything. It wasn't any one thing. And this is going to be a Dear Diary moment. We got our Dear Diary segments. I'd like to think that this show, the show as a whole, is not Dear Diary but in the same way like a, a, a TV show has a segment dedicated to something, I'd like to think this show has a Dear Diary segment. And, uh, you know, it's just, I think just, the holidays, I believe, were, were much more difficult than I expected. You know, it's the second Christmas, my second birthday without my mom. And the first one was so soon after she died that there was all this momentum. There were gifts from her. 
there were Amazon packages arriving to her house that she had ordered before she died. So she was still, in some material way, while she wasn't there, these gifts were there, and, and I was able to spend the holidays with my entire family. I spent Christmas Eve last that year with you know, my dad, uncle, little sister, brother-in-law, older sister, spent Christmas Day with my older sister and brother-in-law. So, you know, there, and there was a lot of momentum, you know, and I was still floating, you know, that, as I've talked about that whole experience after my mom died of just floating for a couple of weeks, all of that was going on. So this last holiday, while I don't think I didn't sit around weeping or anything, it was just sort of like getting through it and being alone was strange because I love Christmas. I love the feeling of Christmas. And so spending that alone was just, it, I think it was more difficult in retrospect than it felt even at the time. So there's that. So there's like getting through the holidays and then you enter the new year, which to me, as I said, you know, it's like the change in year is pretty, pretty insignificant to me. And, and then, you know, and Batty was having some issues the first week of the new year and I was concerned about him and then this event happened at the Capitol, which, you know, God, I, I don't condone that. I don't condone what happened there. And I, I do find it disturbing, not just because of what it was, but also because of the response to it. And because that event was over, you know, because that event was over of the people there, and maybe something like that will happen again. I don't know. I feel like things have escalated to a point, and maybe the steam, maybe that blew the top off. Maybe that, maybe the steam escaped from all those people's skulls. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with people. But, you know, when I was arguing with people, I was arguing largely about the escalating response where there was an immediate, because it's not just Trumpsfeld, but you can see stuff where, you know, I've never listened to the Red Scare podcast. One of my friends does. And I look at one of the girls' Twitter pages. I've never once heard their show because I think I wouldn't like it. So I'm not a fan of the Red Scare podcast, but they are girls on the left who push back on the left. They kind of fit into that area of, from what I know, and this is just someone who doesn't even listen to it. But they're on the left, but they criticize the left. And they're willing to kind of, you know, they're willing to challenge the far left narrative for sure, from what I've gathered from uh, seeing what Anna Katchian says and things like that. But I, I wouldn't call myself a fan of them. But I saw where their Twitter got banned and others... And I see where the response to that from a lot of people, I see these memes, they're actually memes where they're like, if you get banned, it's because you're a Nazi. Oh, oh, you're sad that people you follow got banned? Sounds like they were Nazis. I see that said pretty literally. And I'm like, really? Like these, these two pretty harmless girls? I don't know what they said. I don't know what they did that got them banned, but that's not even important. Like, as as for who they are, I know them without, you know, and, and maybe I'm outside of my, uh, my knowledge base here because I've never listened to their show, but I've paid attention to them, and a close friend of mine listens to their show and has talked about it. So it's like, I'm just like, see, that's the slippery slope, though. And the fact that purging all of these Twitter accounts happened at the same time, there's this crackdown. That's what I mean by the response, the escalating response. 
And now we're hearing about, you know, domestic terror bills. And it's like, how is that going to play into wider censorship? And, you know, a friend of mine saying that it's only tangential to bring up art in relation to some someone like Trumpsfeld getting banned from Twitter. And it's like, no, it's all part of the same brush. Art is always coupled with political power. You know, Mike Diana would not be prosecuted for obscenity today. But in 1991, the politics of the time allowed that. And yeah, that's an actual First Amendment issue. The prosecution of Mike Diana was a First Amendment issue because he was put on trial by the government. But we can see where the government and... You know, even the government has been changed by the Internet. It's been changed significantly. And the Internet has been something that has sort of been out ahead of the government. Like, the government has had an extremely difficult time catching up to the Internet. I mean, it goes back to the guy... I have no idea what his name even was, but way back when, in the early, mid, late 2000s, where he's like, the internet is a series of tubes, which, you know, it might be. <laughs> the internet might be a series of tubes. I don't know. I, I always thought that was funny. People made fun of that, but I like it. But you can see where, you know, because politics, because politicians are generally not part of, they're generally not the youth, for one. They have a very hard time catching up with what's going on, which is why they respond so severely. Which is why, you know, in the 80s, a Slayer CD seemed, oh my God, this is going to create a bunch of Satanists. Like, they don't understand how harmless a Slayer CD is. Because they're so out of touch. I mean, that's, that's the phrase I'm looking for, is politicians have, are typically out of touch. And if politicians are out of touch, the government as a whole is out of touch. And the government has been incredibly out of touch when it comes to the Internet. But we are seeing where those two things are merging, where the government is using the Internet more and more. And they're using it in ways that connect them with younger people, with more people. We're seeing where the government uses social media, the president. Most of the, you know, if Donald Trump still hadn't been on Twitter the last four or five years, people would probably have a much different perception of him. Politically as well as personally. You know, they might still feel the same way about his personality and character, but they would feel much differently about him. And they see what he says online as a, they see it having a direct political effect. And I would agree with them. It does. He's the president. Whatever he says has a political effect. But, uh, you know, so this online thing, though, the government has struggled to catch up to it. So it hasn't been able to find very many Mike Dianas online. So enforcement online, which is now, you know, the primary means of expression, you know, a guy like Mike Diana making zines, for a small niche group of people that happened to fall into someone's hands who thought it was dangerous, that's antiquated. You know, that's, that's a complete non-threat. Nobody out there is worried about somebody printing a zine. You know, yeah, there's political pamphlets, there's things, you know, there, you know I saw things where, over the summer, where, you know, certain uh, 
right-wing journalists were like, we found this Antifa pamphlet that says this. And it, it, what's funny about that is I've been seeing those forever. As someone who kind of skirted up against the punk scene in the late 90s, early 2000s, at least saw what they were doing. Those kinds of pamphlets, I, those are old hat. And some of these pamphlets looked like they were the same ones that people had made then. But, uh, you know, what's funny about it, though, is, is uh, you know, that kind of thing. Printed material has way less weight. But the government has had a harder time going after people in the same way they would have gone after, say, Mike Diana. He's just an example, you know, I can use. Um, but we're reaching that point. We're reaching that point where the government might start intervening. And when you see domestic terror bills, 20,000-word domestic terror bills launched the day after the Capitol riot, you got to worry in the same way that you would worry about the Patriot Act after 9-11 and how the Patriot Act wasn't just a way to go after Muslim terrorists, but it was something that had, here's that word, sweeping. It had sweeping implications for every U.S. citizen, and we just live with that now. As far as I know, we just live with everything that was bundled into the Patriot Act. And so that's a concern. You know, it's not as simple as the the skinny bearded Twitter guy, who in my opinion looks like Lowly Worm from Richard Scarry, if you're familiar with Lowly Worm. I've met a couple Lowly Worms. <laughs> I like that his name's Lowly Worm. But there's these guys who look like Lowly Worm, and that's okay. It's okay to look like lowly worm, but they behave like lowly worm, (laughs) who's probably nice. I shouldn't demonize lowly worm. Demonizing lowly worm. Uh, But, you know, it's not as simple as just that guy banning somebody. And the other argument you see is, one, is that, oh, you're worried about people being banned? Well, it sounds like you're following Nazis. And, again, it comes back to that gradient where when you chop off one end, like if it's a gradient from black to white with gray in between and you chop the black end off, the dark gray becomes the new black. You chop that off, the medium gray becomes the new black. You chop that off and, oh, now you only have light gray and white. Well, guess what the new black is? It's light gray. And that might sound extreme, but we've seen where things like that play out. We've seen where people have a need... You know, we need opposition. We need opposition as human beings. We need that contrast, and we will see contrast everywhere. It's why you can meet somebody who has the exact same taste as you. You're both at the same end of the gradient spectrum. And you say, oh, you know, I'm more of an Iron Maiden guy. And they say, uh, Judas Priest here. And you could very well bond over that. And be like, we both like heavy metal. We both like British heavy metal. We both like British heavy metal. Give me a, give me a handshake. You know, you could do that. Or you could be like, well, Priest is better. Iron Maiden sucks. Iron Maiden sucks. Or you could do that. And it could be a problem. 
And I know I always use those examples because they're funny, but it's actually if, if you're someone who's deeply into music, you'll you'll find that that happens where you can actually create this big divide over a, a minor disagreement in taste. And actually, a friend of mine was telling me that recently he met somebody new who was trying to recommend all these bands that were in the same genre they liked, but my friend didn't like them. And the guy kept pushing them and being like, no, have you listened to this? Listen to this. And uh, it actually creates more separation to do that. Even though you're in this same little niche, it becomes annoying at the very least when someone just keeps pushing something on you that you're not interested in. Um, but... uh yeah, you know, so, it, it, you know, when you lop off one end of the spectrum, the next farthest, you know, the, the next closest thing to the, to the part that got lopped off becomes the new extreme. And we see that with censorship. Like I said, it's like, I don't know what the Red Scare podcast did. And to be honest, like, you know, I said to people the other day, I was like, Donald Trumpsfeld and his Twitter account, that's not the hill that I'm going to die on, but it's necessary for me to talk about that specific instance since it's the big thing right now when the president himself gets banned from everything we need to hear a bunch of different viewpoints on that and by expressing a different viewpoint even if you want to frame it as devil's advocate which again i don't feel that i'm a devil's advocate but still even if you want to frame it that way we need that argument in the same way that even the worst possible criminal needs a lawyer deserves a lawyer that's how our system works but it was interesting how like some of that ended up with this personal analysis of me. And I joked about it when I was talking to these people where I was like, since we're talking about me, let's talk about me. Like you spent a lot of time with me, you know my character, at least what you saw of it. And, and to pretend that that's the whole of my character isn't true, but you at least know enough about me. And I can tell you I haven't changed because, you know, one of my friends was like, you know, we've seen where people have become radicalized. And he was essentially like asking me, you're not a QAnon freak, are you? You're not a QAnon freak. Because, I mean, like, like what if it was, uh, I mean, what if I chose to, to make the Red Scare my argument? What if I chose the Red Scare? First, someone would probably say, oh, so you're a Red Scare listener, huh? And I'd say, I've never heard it. I know a little bit about it. I kind of know, I know their tone. I kind of know where they stand, where they're on the left. They're sort of on that, the left that's left the left category. They're certainly not right wing. They're certainly not radicalized right wingers. They have more of a cultural response to what's going on. And that's me. That's one thing I can say for me, is that most of my response is not political, it is cultural. And I try to make it a point that you can't separate political censorship from cultural censorship. They bleed together. Like I was saying, Mike Diana would not be prosecuted for obscenity today because the politics have changed. The politics of 1991 in Florida allowed for Mike Diana to have to go to trial to defend his silly, goofy, violent art that was published in zines. And you know what they did by doing that? They made Mike Diana a much more well-known figure. I don't even know that I would know who Mike Diana is. I might. You know, he's done album art and stuff. He's, he's around, you know, being somebody from, 
for lack of a better word, like the underground, you know, I, I might've found, I might've found Mike Diana anyway, but you know, Mike Diana would not be as well known. I believe there's even a documentary about him. If I remember, I haven't seen it, but I know they were, they were going to make one if they didn't already make it, but it's like, you can see where the politics of that time, politics were more conservative. So the idea of this guy doing gruesome, violent cartoons seemed to be a problem, and they made him go to trial. So for me, the concern is always cultural. But you can't separate that from the political. Because politics suffer at the... like Culture influences politics to be where they are, but politics can then enforce things where, you know, responding to the capital situation with a domestic terror bill and whatever's bundled in that, we don't know how that's going to affect culture. Like, if I were to make a comic book about QAnon, you know, saving Trumpsfeld, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the story here. I'm trying to come up with the best story of my life. If, if, I'm, if I came up with a comic book that was about QAnon saving Trumpsfeld from the jaws of the Democratic alligators who stole his erection... Would that be banned if that were seen as sympathetic to the, to the capital protesters, the capital rioters? If I were to make art that was seen as sympathetic to that, would that be banned? It's very possible. It is very possible that anything that could be perceived as advocacy, even in the form of art, like if I started a band, like if I started a QAnon band, which does that exist, the QAnon band? Hey, we're the QAnon band. We're playing at uh, Larry's Bar and Grill. Would the QAnon band not be be able to play at the local bar? I mean, mean, that's a real question. You know, even though that's silly, even though that's very silly, would the QAnon band not be able to play at a local bar for legal reasons? Because QAnon is associated with this so-called insurrection. I don't, you know, that's, that's a real question. And so, it, and the problem is, is that people think that everything that gets banned or everything that gets cracked down upon is somehow part of the far end of the spectrum. But if you were to look at something like the Red Scare, where even if you find something they do wrong or offensive, the fact that that was banned alongside Donald Trumpsfeld, whether it was related, whether it was something else, and you'll hear the excuse too, oh, it got caught up in the, in the, uh, the flagging system. Or you look at like Brett Weinstein. He was a professor at, at my college, Evergreen, who I never knew. I'd never even heard of him. You know, I took one science class. He wasn't my professor. He and his wife, uh, I had never even heard of them, even though they were there. They were apparently my neighbors, too. Turns out they lived very close to me. They taught at a school I went to for eight years. Never even heard of them once until he got in trouble. He got kicked out. He had mobs of people coming after him, looking into into cars, As cars were coming into the Evergreen parking lot, people were standing there with baseball bats waiting for him. And it was all because, if you're not familiar with that situation, it all started because 
the Evergreen State College had this day of absence where I believe black students wouldn't come into school to show the school what it would be like without black people there. Which, you know, hey, that that's a that's a strong point to make. You know, that's a strong point to make. Like, here's what it would be like if these people weren't here, if we weren't here. These people, what do you mean by that? No. Here, here here's what it would be like if a certain group of people wasn't here on a given day. But in 2017, somebody threw out the idea that how about instead of the black people staying home, we tell all the white people to stay home. And Brett Weinstein responded to that with, you can't do that. You can't tell enough. It's one thing to be a group and decide that we're going to stay home today to show you what it would be like without us. It's another to say, how about you stay home? And if you don't do it, that's a problem. If you don't do it, you're a racist. And, you know, there was more going on at the school at the time, and I recommend you look into it, but a Jewish liberal science professor, which seems like, you know, he'd be pretty popular, right? In our world of science and, you know, and like the way that that leftism props up science, you'd think that he'd be a pretty popular figure. And, you know, being being a Jew as well, you know, you'd think that that would give him a Jew, you know, and I say that not for any particular reason, just because, you know, he, he's not like, a, his last name's not Smith. He doesn't necessarily represent white colonialism, I guess is what I'm getting at by bringing that up. And, uh, but the fact that he could be targeted so severely and driven from the school, and have his safety challenged. You know, it's a great example, because Evergreen is a place where, when I went there, it was during the Bush era, and there were Republicans there, not many, but I took some history classes where there was a guy who had served in Vietnam, and he was a diehard Bush supporter, an older guy, obviously. No, he was a 20-year-old in 2004 who had served in Vietnam, somehow, he was a baby. He was an unborn child going around the jungles of Vietnam. Vietnam was so weird, dude. There were unborn children there fighting. No, but he was he was old enough to have been in Vietnam and he was a blowhard. Even though I myself was at the very least open to conservatives, if not having some conservative tendencies at the time, he was a blowhard. Like he he loved the fact that he was he loved the fact that he got to be the minority at this school. Like, he enjoyed the fact that as a Republican, as a Bush supporter in a school that hated Bush, the professors hated Bush. One time my professor, the same professor of that class, called George W. Bush a son of a bitch. And then the next day he stood up and he gave this apology. And he goes, I apologize for what I said about George W. Bush. It was not appropriate. And what was interesting about that is the Republican guy stood up and he said, you don't have to apologize. Like, it's totally fine. And I loved that moment. Because the professor realized that it wasn't his place to call George W. Bush a son of a bitch in front of an entire classroom. But the guy who loved George W. Bush said, it's totally fine. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's the kind of conversation I like to see, where nobody's offended. One person felt maybe they overstepped their bounds. The person who would have been most offended was not. He could have chosen to be, hey, I'm paying to come here and you're insulting the president who I support. 
There were some other ex-military guys in, in my classes, too, who were conservative, and they kind of, they were typically older, but it was acceptable. But I think since then, you know, it was almost 10 years after I left Evergreen that this situation with Brett Weinstein developed. And I think in the meantime, I mean, just based on how the wider culture had shifted, I think that some of those extremes had been chopped off. I think the feedback loop in Evergreen had become even more insular. And as a result, the liberal Jewish science teacher was now the Nazi and had to be forcibly removed. So that's exactly what I'm talking about. It doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree. You can see how that situation plays out. And I don't even see what there is to agree or disagree about. You know, somebody simply saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't tell another group of people they can't come or they shouldn't come to school. That's all he was saying. Had he given other pushback, uh, you know, I, I believe he had given other pushback about some of the policies that had been developed. But I mean, this guy is not a hateful guy. But the point I bring him up is he was doing this thing, if you're not familiar, which was really, I would say it was almost cute. <laughs> he, he, he had launched this campaign that was like Unity 2020. And the idea was that we get a somebody on the center left and the center right, and they're going to serve as vice president and president. and basically check each other, and then switch roles after four years. And it's going to be this bipartisan party, which should exist. Like, my opinion is that in a presidential election, the president should be whoever wins the election, and the vice president should be the runner-up. Like, the idea of the president choosing his vice president, you know, I get it. I get why it's, that, why it's set up that way why he would want somebody who compliments him or who is on his side. But I think it would be much more interesting if the vice president was his opponent leading up through the election. And that would be incredible. Like, imagine <laughs> imagine if the next four years were, were Joe Obama, Biden, and Donald Trumpsfeld together. Think about that beautiful odd couple movie that we would all get to witness. And, you know, regardless of what I say about Donald Trumpsfeld, I would love to see him have to be in a secondary role to Obama Biden. I would just love that. I think that would be funny. I think it would be funny to see the cheap shots or to even see them cooperate. You know, because Trumpsfeld is a guy who that guy cannot play second. You know, he cannot play second to anybody. And I think that situation would actually be far funnier than uh, if, if Trumpsfeld had won and Obama Biden had been the vice president. Because I think that would just mean, like, nothing. It would just mean nothing. It would just be Trumpsfeld dunking on, on Biden all the time. Uh, but uh, if it was the reverse where it's, like, uh, Biden's the president and Trumpsfeld's the vice president, I think that would be hilarious. But anyway, like, this Unity 2020 thing, like, I remember him talking about it and I paid attention to it. And I pay close attention to him in part because it hits so close to home, literally. You know, he was the professor at a college I went to. I go to that college multiple times a week. I I go to that college more often since I graduated than when I actually went there. Because it has all kinds of trails, all, all kinds of places to walk. It's a very interesting looking campus. So I go there more often than really any other place 
to walk. And uh, so it's interesting to me personally because I went there, you know, uh, because he lived near me. He taught there. It involved the school that I went to, and I got to see how that school became even more radicalized. And it was always a radical left college. It always had a reputation for being the extreme of the extreme when it comes to the left. But to see it become even further radicalized and to see it target people who were, in fact, on their side, you know, uh, you know, to target a liberal professor for simply giving mild pushback on a controversial idea. But the Unity 2020 thing was banned. They banned all of his Unity 2020 accounts, which are, they were the most benign thing. Like I said, they were almost cute. It was so silly that he thought there could be some sort of new political party in 2020 that involved a center-right and center-left politician who he didn't even have their consent. You know, the people who he wanted to fill those roles weren't even part of this campaign. He was just like, here's a new political party that's going to be based on unity. And it's like, good luck with that. Like that thing would have just failed either way. You know, it was a very cute gesture to think that he could be some sort of peacemaker. But he got banned a while ago, uh, or that account, those accounts got banned. They got a, they got banned on a couple different social media platforms, I think last summer. And uh, he said he never got a proper response. It was some sort of like, this was flagged for some kind of manipulation. And I don't know what goes on. I don't know what goes on in terms of like why things get flagged. But it's gone. And it's been gone. And so the, the Red Scare thing made me think of that. So this isn't just a matter of these companies shutting down Trumpsfeld for inciting a, a would-be coup. This is something we've seen play out continually, and you could come up with a million other examples of somebody being shut off these major platforms for something benign. So that's, that's just that. You know, it's not just one thing or another. It's a, and the, the issue, though, is that many people are unaware of these things. Many people are unaware of these benign people and these benign groups these benign podcasts that get lumped in with some sort of, they get branded dangerous. They get, they get branded troublesome. And that's, you know, what I'm talking about where like the gradient, the, the middle gray becomes darker when you get rid of the black. And I feel like all the free speech points have already been made, but just something I'm thinking about, but I'm feeling good right now. Like doing this podcast actually feels good. I think I'm done with this topic for the time being, and we'll have to see what else comes of it. You know, my friend came over last night, and we were talking about synchronicity, and I could go on for another hour about that. But it did get me thinking, like, you know, I do want to, I want to dig more into that stuff again, because I feel like I reached a certain plateau with ideas like synchronicity when I realized that, oh yeah, synchronicity is one whole thing that you get glimpses of. It's not these little micro events. They're not these little micro coincidences that happen that go, oh, wow, I can't believe that that came up 10 times this week. I've never had a tenfold synchronicity. I've had four. I've had four synchronicities in like a two-day period before. But who's counting? Because that's the thing is you stop counting. 
I think that happened with me when I realized that synchronicity was this larger whole that I get glimpses of. And the example I always use is if you're driving along the highway and you see the mountain in the distance and all of a sudden the mountain is covered in trees because you're driving through the forest and now you're in a city and the mountain is blocked by buildings and then you get another glimpse of the mountain. You know it's the same mountain. You know, our cognitive ability allows us to see that that is the same mountain all along. And as you travel, you might start to see different sides of the mountain. You might start to get closer to the mountain. But it's still the same mountain. And that was the realization I had with the experience of synchronicity, where you're experiencing these little coincidences, these different events, things lining up. And it's very easy to think about, like, what can I get out of this one experience? Like I've mentioned before, the burning bush synchronicity. Oh, does that mean that I have to analyze the burning bush? Because because the topic of the burning bush came up four times in two days in really strange separate ways, and it's something that never comes up in my life, Does that mean that I need to focus solely on what the burning bush means? Probably not, unless it's obvious. But for me, it's simply, oh, this is communicating to me that there is a larger connectivity. And if I'm experiencing that larger connectivity, that means I am closer to it. That means I am going with the grain in some way. And going with the grain can be something that's actually painful for you. That's something people don't realize when they're like, oh, you're on the right path. Because you'll hear that a lot. Oh, you're experiencing synchronicity? You're on the right path. Well, the right path might be a painful path that you need to go through. And that was what I experienced in South Korea. That's what I've experienced. I experienced that going to California once, where synchronicities were popping off all the time. Both those trips, all the time. And what that communicated to me was even though there is a degree of tension and angst, disappointment, whatever it is you're going through, that is still going with the grain. Because going with the grain means doing what's necessary. Like going with the flow of the river means there are going to be rapids. There's going to be things in that river. There's going to be piranhas maybe. And sometimes you need to make it through those piranhas. And that doesn't mean you're going the wrong way. And I've heard synchronicities referred to as signposts. But in my experience, basically how I feel about it is it is a signpost. All of those individual synchronicities you may or may not experience are not individual signposts giving you separate messages. They are the same signpost. They have the same message. Which is one of connectivity and wholeness. And maybe there's more to it. I don't know. Maybe maybe somebody else has a different interpretation. For me, synchronicity is a way of leading you to the realization that the wholeness is here. And, and because everything is whole, every separate component of that wholeness can connect at any given time, even unexpectedly, even when it defies reason, logic, probability. You know, that's simply how it is. And I would never say it's an, I know exactly what that is, but it was a realization I had. And in realizing that, it made it apparent to me that I don't need to obsess over every little one. Because I used to do that. I, if I experienced synchronicity, I used to want to call somebody. 
I was like, you wouldn't believe what happened today. You wouldn't believe it. I saw a frog on my front porch. And then, uh, you know, I went to the grocery store and they had a big cutout of a frog uh, advertising Budweiser. And then I went out to my car and there was a frog on my windshield. And then I went to Goodwill. I went to the, I went to the thrift store and I found a frog mask. What does it mean? Does it mean I'm a frog? Oh my god, I think I'm turning into a frog. I think I'm supposed to be a frog, guys. I think I'm supposed to change my name to frog. I think I'm supposed to change my name to frog. <laughs> now people, you know, you can really search for a meaning, but I think in recognizing that, oh yeah, this is, an, this is a communication of wholeness. And since I had that realization, what's interesting is I either don't experience or don't notice synchronicity as much. Because I simply have that feeling all the time. Uh, so that that's interesting. That's interesting. And, you know, we're going to see a crackdown on mysticism. Not a crackdown, but we're going to see more and more pushback on mysticism. I've started to see it recently. Where, you know, atheism is, is a, much more popular than it ever was. I don't, not necessarily that new atheism. Not necessarily like the Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris atheism, although I imagine that's still popular. But we're going to see an atheism that is actually no longer atheistic and purely worships science. Not the scientific process, but science. And we're already seeing where any challenge to science, even though it's constantly evolving, and we've seen that with coronavirus. And as much as I joke about, oh, my lung was damaged, that's not a joke. My lung was damaged by something. Maybe a frog crawled in my lung. I don't know. But my lung was damaged after I got sick earlier this year. And it could have been coronavi, but I mean, coronavi is a hoax, guys. And, and so that's just proof that your lung can be damaged by a hoax. But no, even saying that, somebody would have a problem with that. Because we're seeing, we're giving any pushback on the coronavi narrative makes you dangerous. And I'm not an anti-masker. I'm a pro-masker. In fact, I think we should have been wearing masks a long time ago. I think we should all have been wearing ski masks everywhere a long time ago. It's kind of like the gun argument, where it's like, if everybody has a gun, then people aren't going to shoot each other because everybody has a gun. People aren't going to rob each other at gunpoint in Texas if, you know, of course they do. But it's like in places like Texas where you're far more likely to find somebody with a gun on them. You know, you run a much greater risk if you pull a gun out. I feel the same way about masks. Where you could think, oh, if we live in a world where everybody just wears ski masks all the time, people are going to commit a lot more crimes. But if everybody's wearing a ski mask, you never really know who's a criminal. You never really know who's a threat. No, I, don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. That's the first time I've had that thought. <laughs> no, but I'm pro-mask. I think masks are cool on their own. Uh, that's why I don't get self-righteous about the coronavi mask, the era of the coronavi mask, because I like masks for masks' sake. And the fact that we have to wear them now is not a problem to me. I understand why people don't like being forced to do anything, 
but that's not something I need to protest. But we can see where, you know, the people who do challenge the coronavi narrative, which to even, you know, to even the most normal person, you have to admit that the coronavi narrative has changed. And it's changed because we don't quite understand it. We haven't quite understood it all along. And of course, the narrative has changed. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a lie or manipulative or anything like that. But that's the exact reason why I don't have total faith in science, because science disproves science continually. The scientific process is designed to disprove itself. And you can have faith in that. You can have faith in the uncertainty of that. And and tell yourself that, oh, while this works, let's try it. It's kind of like psychology to me, where... I've never been to a therapist. I've, I've never, I worked in that industry for a little while. I worked in the psychology, mental health industry for years, actually, uh, a business that was adjacent to that. But what got me about that is I was like, this is so new. And it's given people great tools for helping themselves. But in a way, it's become a new religion. People are stuck on this. Like people think that this is going to be the way the human mind is understood 300 years from now. You know, even though it's helpful now, even though it gives us language and tools now that help people, I think some people think that you can just rest on that. And the only real problem I have with mental health therapy, I mean, my best childhood friend is a psychologist, and I would say that he was a psychologist long before he had his paperwork. I would say when he was five years old, he was a little psychologist. Uh, he, uh, people always came to him with issues. He always had a certain insight to give to people, especially weak-minded people. And I don't mean that as an insult, but I feel that some of our weaker friends, mentally weaker friends, and I, not stupid, but just people who had kind of a harder time grasping things, I noticed that they always went to him. And so you can see where that's even a role. It doesn't matter what you're accredited accredited with. People will go to him. And even before he became a psychologist, even before he was planning on becoming one, I remember him telling me that he would run into this guy we knew who wasn't a friend of ours. He was just a, a guy that we grew up with. He would run into him in town. And he said every time he would run into this guy, this guy would launch into something about like his stepmom, like doing this for trying to take money from his dad's estate or his, you know, his stepsister doing this, you know, he always, every time he would run into him casually, you know, hello, what would normally be hello, goodbye would launch into this sort of, uh, launch into a, uh, you know, kind of like some confession about what was going on in his life, like seeking advice. So my friend, I think was just naturally born in that role. In the same way that priests served in that role, I think some people naturally serve in that role to their friends. I think my mom served in that role to many of her friends. So you can see where like the, the function of a psychologist, regardless of the language and education, predates psychiatry, it predates psychology, it certainly predates Freud. And so what does that tell you? Well, that should tell you that something else is going to come along too. Someday we're going to look back at contemporary psychology and say, oh, that's kind of antiquated. We have a different understanding of things now. If nothing else, the field of psychology will still exist, but it will be expanded. And we've even seen it change in our lifetime. We've seen the diagnostics change. We've seen where the DSM gets updated. You know, if you're not familiar with the DSM, it's, you know, the diagnostic manual 
I don't know what it actually stands for, but it's continually getting updated. And that's science. That's the scientific process, even with psychology. It's continually being updated. So you have to go into life remembering that, that you can't necessarily rest on any given one thing. And that's sort of the approach I have to orthodox anything. Like, you can't be an orthodox psychologist. Because what works for people now is not necessarily the be-all, end-all. And as things shift, it might not work as well. You might come up with new ideas. The understanding might change. And you have to be willing to accept that. Same is true for orthodox religion. Where, like, the idea of living a life today an orthodox religious life today that is wholly consistent with the orthodoxy of hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, you just don't live in that time and you're probably LARPing. And if it works for you, it works for you. I can't take that away, but you're probably LARPing. But I think one of my biggest issues with psychology and therapy is that you can tell when somebody is deep in that world You can tell when somebody spends a lot of time talking to therapists because they start talking to you in the same language. And this is true for some people I care about, so I don't want this to come across as a criticism of them. But I've noticed where people who are, who have been deep, who have gotten a lot of therapy, start to sound like people who are in therapy. They use very similar language. And that doesn't work for me. It doesn't sound like people talk. You know, you start to hear words like growth and uh, development and, I don't know, all kinds of things. I wouldn't even be able to, to list them all off. But I think if you know what I mean, you know what I mean. Where certain people just, that becomes the language. And they think that you need that language too. When to me, I don't speak that language. And maybe it sounds that way. Maybe I do. Maybe I secretly do. Maybe I come across on this show like I speak the language of therapy and psychology and all of that. But the reality is I don't. And I try not to think that way either. I often say on this show, you know, I'm trying not to get Psych 101 about this, but... Oh, uh, I... It's like some sort of Freudian thing. It's like, oh, what I'm getting from this is that your animosity toward your mother comes from the fact that you want to your mother. You know, I don't think you should ever jump into that if you don't have to and recognize that your understanding of people's minds is going to expand. Your own mind is going to expand. Your own understanding of your own mind is going to expand. I think the human mind has been continually expanding. And I think this kind of is a good way to sum all this up because I think censorship is a way of preventing the human mind from expanding at its own natural rate. I believe trying to shut certain ways of thinking down is preventing the expansion because the expansion requires everything. In the same way that I believe synchronicity is a communication of the totality and the wholeness, I believe that that wholeness requires every possible and potential way of thinking, including ones you really don't like, including ways of thinking that you think are a problem, including ways of expressing yourself that you take issue with. Because 
getting rid of those doesn't get rid of them. It causes them to mutate and take a different form. And, uh, you know, so in that way, you don't really prevent the expansion. You don't prevent the expansion. And nobody thinks of it that way. Like, people don't think, oh, by, by limiting certain speech, by limiting hate speech, I'm preventing the human mind from expanding at its own natural rate. People wouldn't think of it that way, and that sounds insane to somebody. But I think it's true. I think when you stop these things from being expressed, they mutate and they take a different form, but the expansion continues, and those things might come back in a much stronger way, too. They might actually have much more weight. It's funny, I just, I, I know I mentioned this the other day, but I can't stop thinking about Obi-Wan Kenobi. I can't stop thinking about Obi-Wan Kenobi. Because, you know, if you strike me down, I will be more possible, I will be more powerful than you can possibly imagine. It's one of the most powerful quotes from Star Wars. One of the most powerful quotes from Star Wars. You can't win, Darth. You can't win, Darth. You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I'll be more powerful than you can possibly imagine. You know, it's it's the best quote from Star Wars because it's the truth. If you strike me down, I will be more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Because my spirit goes everywhere. My spirit is concentrated right here, fighting you with a lightsaber in this given moment. But if you strike me down, my spirit goes everywhere, and you've done nothing to get rid of my spirit. And people don't like mysticism right now. Like, along with this worship of science, which is funny because it comes from atheists, but you got to find something to worship. You know, you got to find something to worship, but... You know, people don't like mysticism right now, and, and we're actually seeing that. I did an episode that I deleted where I saw a meme, and I don't know how common this is, but it was talking about Nazi hippies and the New Age far right, which, of course, because everything exists, that exists. I mean, I've been talking for years, <laughs> months. I've been talking for months. I'd like it to be years, but I've been talking for months now, if you follow this show, about how in 10 years, I'm going to be totally bald on top with a goatee, ripped with a 25-year-old Buddhist Republican girlfriend who is going to be infinitely more enlightened and infinitely more conservative than me. And she is going to ride me so hard. And I don't mean that in a dirty way. I mean, she is going to try to push me so much farther into the extreme that you can't even imagine. And I'm going to be such a soft, I'm going to be putty in her hands. Uh, But it's funny, though, because I've been making that joke for months now about a Buddhist Republican girl. How the, the future of the GOP is impassioned Buddhist Republican girls. And then somebody I know posted this meme about the new Nazi hippies. And this was not a joke. This is somebody who's very concerned about the direction that the right wing is going. And I couldn't help but feel maybe they were targeting me. Maybe I'm a Nazi hippie. Maybe I'm part of the New Age far right. Even though I'm not New Age and even though I'm not far right even though I'm not a Nazi and I'm not a hippie. (laughs) I looked at the list of, it was a Venn diagram combining these things. And on one side was New Age, on the other side was Right Wing. And it used these very general qualities and then it intersected them and showed like how they intersect into this new form of Nazi hippie, New Age far right. And I was like, "If, if people are actually worried about this, 
things are going to get so fun. Things are going to be so fun in the next few years. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. Because you think, you know, I love to quote the band Greendy. Greendy, who did a song, Walking Contradiction. A Nazi hippie is a walking contradiction. The New Age far right is a walking contradiction. Yeah, the actual National Socialists had a degree of mysticism, as just about every government in history ever has, save the communists. But the communists are a great example of where they develop their own mysticism, but it's a cold atheist mysticism. It's a cold mysticism, you know, because I don't think you can escape some sort of mystic thinking. I don't think you can escape some sort of spiritual thinking, whether you realize it or not, or call it what you want, which is why the worship of science in and of itself to me is actually a form of mysticism. You just have to call it that. You just have to point it out. Um, and that's good. That's actually, that makes it cool. Like, I think it's cool that science itself has its own brand of mysticism. It's just when people try to, when people are orthodox about that and they try to act like that's the be all end all contemporary science is the be all end all bow before it. Bow before the microscope. Lick that microscope. The microscope is the body of I don't know who. That microscope is the body of Carl Sagan. Lick it. Um, But, you know, with mysticism and everything, you know, you can see that's exactly what I'm talking about, where, sure, like a Nazi hippie can exist. A new age far right can exist. Because everything is possible, that's certainly possible, and I wouldn't try to deny that. However, however, the person I know who posted this, who I love, it's a guy I know personally, who I care about, he posted this as, a, as sort of a warning, I think. I think he, he'd like, be on the lookout for this. Be on the lookout for these anti-science far right and like and what it pointed out was that both the new age and the far right are very into individualism you know the far right tends to be mystical in a christian sense new age is obviously mystical both of them focus on self-improvement and interestingly it pointed out that the new age is very focused on fitness And that's an interesting angle that, you know, the the anti-fitness movement, like the idea that self-care is eating all the ice cream you want and binge watching. That's not self-care because you won't feel good. It's good to indulge. It's good to have a night where you indulge. And I haven't been eating at all. Like I have been. Like I'm eating. I'm not starving myself. But the last few days, just my state of mind has not allowed me to, like, sit down and eat as much as I could or should. But when you do that, your mind races. And not in a, like, it's not a manic thing, but you have such an increased clarity. And a few weeks ago, you know, I mentioned, I'm not smoking weed right now, but, like, I mentioned maybe a month ago that I was smoking some weed again. And what I found with that was, one, I eat a lot. And it makes, it does make your brain cloudier. You know, while you do think, it's not like you're not thinking. It's like you do have interesting thoughts coming to you. Your general state is a lot cloudier. And 
when you eat a lot, like when you overeat, like if I stay up too late, then let's just get weed out of the conversation. If I just stay up late eating, no matter what, if I overeat, my brain is a lot foggier the next day. And it takes a couple days for that to clear. And I can tell you that right now, not eating as much, my brain is actually working much quicker. And this is something that people experience when they fast. And it's one of the reasons I do intermittent fasting. But when you do long-term fasting, which I've never done, I have no interest in not eating for significant periods of time. But from what I've read about it, in doing substantial fasting for lengths of time, people find that their their minds go all kinds of places. And not delusional places, but they just they gain greater insight. They gain they gain they grain. They gain greater clarity in certain issues, sometimes spiritual, sometimes not, sometimes personal. So it's interesting how food does that. It's interesting how food can cloud your thinking. It's interesting how it can weigh you down, not just physically in terms of eating too much and gaining weight or having all of this food that you're digesting in a given moment, although that's part of it too. It can kind of weigh your entire being down. And it's funny to me that the the whole movement of self-care is associated with indulgence. Yeah, get a pizza and some ice cream. And you need to do that sometimes. You need to have tasty things sometimes. But that's not really self-care because you actually feel like shit and you don't think as clear afterward. Maybe some people do. I know from my own experience that I don't. I know from paying attention to other people that they don't. And And even just with intermittent fasting, you know, if I nail it, like if I eat the perfect amount and, you know, I don't measure food. I don't, I don't calorie count. I, can, I just kind of have a sense for what I should consume or not consume. But when I have everything perfectly timed, like when I'm eating at the perfect intervals and I stop eating at the perfect time and I fast for the right amount of time, when I wake up that next day, I feel perfect. And I don't just physically feel perfect. My mind is often in the perfect place. So there is a real correlation between these things. There is a real correlation between all of this. And is that mystical? I mean, you could say that's scientific, and I wouldn't disagree. I wouldn't disagree that that's a, there is a, obviously your biological body is processing things or not processing things a certain way, and that is impacting your overall well-being, which is why, like, I'm not anti-science. I'm not against the scientific process. I wouldn't deny that fasting or what you eat or how you eat it affects how you are and what you think. I would never deny that. I would have no interest in that. But I also wouldn't rest on that. I wouldn't say that itself is science because people have been doing that forever. People have done that for religious reasons. There's so much religious fasting. And that's not done in the name of science, yet it's getting the same result. I mean, somebody who's never heard of the idea of science somebody who's never heard of the scientific process, even though the scientific process plays out whether you like it or not. You know, even though that process plays out no matter what you call it. In the same way that mysticism plays out no matter what you call it. People can be very mystical about science itself. People can be religious about science. We see where many people are. And what's interesting about that is all of the people who worship science saying that not worshiping science is dangerous. Sounds a lot like some other people I know. 
Not believing what we believe, not worshiping our God is dangerous. Not swearing your life to Jesus Christ is dangerous. So anytime somebody has that point of view where not doing what we do, not believing what we believe is dangerous, there's an orthodoxy going on. And that's a mystical way of thinking. They've certainly mystified the idea of danger. And in saying this, somebody would say, oh, so you're an anti-vaxxer, huh? If, if I'm going to listen to what you're saying right now, you have to tell me explicitly that you're not an anti-vaxxer. Tell me you're not. Oh, are you anti-mask? Are you anti-mask? Are you an anti-vaxxer, anti-mask? You know, like, like people want you to declare that. And it's like, all these points have nothing to do with that. Baby, I wear a mask. I wear a mask, baby, but I'm not attached to it. I like masks for mask's sake. I'll wear a mask because you're supposed to wear them right now because it's safe. I couldn't care less about the whole anti-mask thing. That's truly unimportant to me. Protesting masks. like Even the, if even though it's mandated and all this stuff to go into stores, I don't love rules. I just don't care enough about that whole issue. Uh, you know, I don't think we're going to live in a world where masks are permanent. You know, I, I, I'm not that worried about that. But, you know, in even questioning the orthodoxy of modern science, people want you to, like, make a declaration. Oh, you're not an anti-vaxxer, are you? You're not a QAnon anti-vaxxer uh, who, uh, you know, get into all that. And, uh, you know, these things develop. These same impulses develop under every different name imaginable, under any given name. And you can even go in, you know, it's like the Coke bottle in Africa being worshipped. Uh, you know, you can really turn anything into a form of mysticism based on your perspective. And you can easily think that anything that defies that, you know, and, and once, once a mysticism becomes an orthodoxy, anything that defies that gets called dangerous. And what does dangerous mean? I mean, that's another one of those words that's been abstracted, like violence and hatred. The word dangerous is a politically manipulative word. And danger should apply to actual danger. If something causes you concern, if something, if a way of thinking or a way of being contributes to something negative, I think you should describe it at length. I don't think you should use one little word to describe it, especially a word that has a very specific meaning. When it says danger outside of the tiger cage at the zoo, you know exactly what that means. If you go into that cage, that tiger is going to snuggle with you and it will never let you go. Because tigers love to snuggle, and they never let anybody who goes into their cages leave because they just want to snuggle forever. You know what I mean? That's why it says danger. And the thing is, and when you use words like danger, and you use words like violence, and you use words like hatred, 
and somebody looks beyond it and sees that the thing that you are talking about doesn't actually fit those descriptions, you do a far greater disservice to your way of thinking. You do a far greater disservice because people are going to now start questioning everything that you stand for. Should they? I don't know. It depends. Depends on what you're saying. But be very careful when you use those words. Be careful when you use those arguments because I think that they are inherently manipulative. And because I went through this recently, I would say also, don't ask somebody to qualify their statements by telling you what they actually believe. Don't ask them to personalize an argument. That's anti-academic, for one. Not that we're all in school, although we are, because every night's a school night. No, you know, that is not an objective argument. You should be able to have an objective argument, a reasonable, gentlemanly, objective argument, without declaring where you stand, which is why debate, debate, debate class in school, debate club in school, which is why they force you to pick an argument that you don't necessarily believe. Like debate club in school, which I wasn't a part of, but maybe I should have been. Debate club in school, they will assign an argument to you and you have to support that argument, whether you believe it or not. I mean, it's like a lawyer. They're training you to be a lawyer where it's like a, a lawyer isn't sitting there going, I love this killer that I'm defending and I totally support his right to kill people. No, the lawyer is in a position to defend him because people deserve a defense. It's similar to the idea of assigning kids a topic in debate club and asking them to debate it, to develop that part of your mind, the ability to do that, to play devil's advocate, if you want to put it that way. But sometimes it's not even the devil that you're advocating for. Sometimes it's just a human advocate. You know, sometimes you're not being a devil's advocate by picking a side, whether you agree or disagree. You're just advocating for somebody else's humanity. You're advocating for another human's perspective that is different from the perspective of those pointing a finger at them. And when people are doing that, when people are pointing a finger at somebody, they are trying to remove that person's humanity in some way. And they deserve to have somebody advocate for them, too, if it comes down to it. It just depends on how much power they have. Depends on how much cultural power, political power. You know, when Mike Diana went to trial for his gruesome little cartoons, does that mean his lawyer was a fan of Mike Diana's comics? Maybe. <laughs> I doubt it, though, because that's not the point. And the lawyer doesn't need to make a statement declaring what he likes or doesn't like. And you don't have to do that either. Because in the same way that people are these little politicians, people are also little lawyers. And every time you engage in an argument, especially when it's something that you are simply looking at objectively, which is what I was trying to do with the Trumpsfeld ban, which is what I'm doing with anything like that that I see, any form of censorship that I see, I try to look at it objectively. I try to see the humanity in it. I try to see it for exactly what it is and give it some benefit of the doubt. Does that mean that I wholly agree? 
No, but I don't think it's harmful to do that. I don't think it's dangerous to do that. I don't think advocating for someone's right to explain themselves, or, or rather, in my terms, to describe themselves. I, I don't think there's anything dangerous about that. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. 